God, as we begin this morning, we're thankful for the chance to sing, and also the words of Dan echo in my heart of just this season where we feel um, sorrow and sighing, and God, we're thankful that you are a good and big father who loves to see your children cast our cares on you. So Lord, this morning we bring our personal burdens to you, and God, we also bring the burdens of our body. God, we pray for Callie Miller and her father, her father in the hospital who's still um, fighting for his life, and we just pray for your hand of healing upon him, pray for wisdom for the medical professionals and doctors and all involved, and pray for Callie and for her mom Cindy and that whole family, Lord, that you would just draw near to them, give them hope, give them wisdom, Lord, help them to know that you are Emmanuel, that you are the God who not only came to be with us 2,000 years ago, but you're a God who is with us day by day and moment by moment. God, we pray for Matt Wasson and losing his father this week, and just that you would um, help him to grieve and lament well, or that he would trust in you in the midst of hard days, that he would turn to you as a father to the fatherless. God, we're thankful that when we lose people we love, that you promise that you draw near to the brokenhearted. And God, we pray for Terry Burke as well, as she continues to, to fight with her bone marrow problem and then anemia, that you would strengthen her. God, we pray that every day you would give her the manna she needs to, to persevere, to continue to trust in you, and to lean into you. And God, as we approach your word, Lord, I pray that in the midst of a, a rushed week and weekend, Lord, that we would just pause and that we would consider Jesus. That as we think about the king who came in humble circumstances, that Jesus truly would become our comfort and our joy. So we ask that this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Well, yesterday I had one of my family Christmas gatherings where we exchange gifts, eat food, and just have a good time together. I'm sure many of you are in the midst of this, this hectic Christmas season. And I don't know if you love this season, if it stresses you out, if it feels disappointing and painful, or if it's a combination of all of those things. But I know for me, during December, I often struggle with what I call Christian Christmas guilt. The reality is I, I know December, and especially Christmas, it's supposed to be about Jesus, about considering him, knowing him, and being changed by him. And yet all the busyness of this season ends up taking a lot of my time and attention, and Jesus gets pushed to the side. There are presents to wrap and to open, decorations to put up, lots of desserts to eat, Maybe you're like me and you had a cookie this morning or two. There are Christmas parties to attend. There are all the end-of-year activities and work to complete. And just all the other things that go on in December. It's not only busy, but it's also for me to get my heart wrapped up in the things of December. I mean, I, I do love the Christmas season. I love the lights. I love the movies, singing the songs. I feel that pressure of trying to deliver to my kids a great Christmas with memories I want to sit and watch The Grinch and um, Frosty with Lily. I want to see Wyatt in those cute little baby pajamas and get the pictures. I want to get my kids presents that they'll like and that will keep them busy the next two weeks. It's important for me and them. But between all of the, the festivities of this season that compete for my time and attention, it's easy, as I said, to then not have the time or give the time to consider what does it mean that Jesus came? What does it mean that Jesus was born as a baby and lived a life for us? So if you feel that tension, that struggle of wanting to have more focus on Jesus during this season, and yet often being wrapped up in the stuff of the season, 
My goal isn't to guilt trip you this morning. Uh, Christmas does have good things. But what I want to offer instead is just that this morning, during this message, that this would be a space. Kind of pause, calm your heart, and simply to reflect on one aspect of what we learn in the Christmas story. You could talk about the birth of Jesus from a lot of different angles. You could talk about what does it mean that he's the light that came into the darkness of our world and our lives? Or how does Jesus actually bring joy and peace and hope? How is Jesus God's unique revelation that he was visible, that people talked to him and touched him? Or how does Jesus bring redemption and reconciliation? All of those are amazing realities that Jesus brings with his coming and with his birth. But this morning, I simply want to consider one aspect of his birth, and that's the fact that Jesus stoops in humility and in lowliness, and that he stoops that low for us. Jesus shows us how low he can go and how humble he is through the incarnation, through his birth, through his entire life, and then ultimately in his death. And hopefully what happens is we not only better than understand who Jesus is, but that teaches us how to relate to Jesus. The good news is that because Jesus is humble and lowly, that Jesus welcomes and receives those this morning who are humble, who are humbled and feel lowly. That Jesus not only receives us, but in the midst of our weakness, our disappointments, our sense of being humbled or broken, that through that, Jesus actually uses us and works in our life, not just despite those things. And so my hope is in the midst of what can be a draining season and all the ups and downs, that as we pause and we reflect on Jesus' birth, his humility and lowliness, that we then can be refreshed by him. So the four things we'll talk about again are that Jesus stoops low in his incarnation, his birth, his life, and then his death. It will be a little bit more topical than normal, but each time we'll talk a little bit about Philippians 2 that I read. So the first thing we see is that Jesus stoops low in his incarnation. One of the things we think about with Christmas is this how remarkable the incarnation is. And when we talk about incarnation, we mean that the Son of God becomes a Son of Man, that God becomes man as the God-man. It's a miracle that not only stretches our mind to try to understand that, but it can even stretch our faith. Do we believe that? Do we believe what that means? Because it's staggering that the God who was worshipped by angels would humble himself to take on human flesh. Not only that, but to be a humble, dependent, powerless baby. That the Creator would become a part of his creation. That the God who had all power would make himself powerless and dependent upon his own mother. In the opening of John's Gospel, he talks about how this eternal, omnipresent word now becomes a flesh and blood human being. Someone who dwells among us. Someone in our own space and time. In Philippians 2, the verse we read, it says this in verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or to be held onto. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So in the incarnation, Jesus doesn't stop becoming God. He doesn't strip himself of his divinity and yet he does limit himself to the restrictions of being a human being, of being in space and time, of needing things like food and sleep. 
Jesus takes on the weaknesses of our bodies and the limits of our minds and emotions. That he's now subject to pain, temptation, and trials. That he also gets weary. That Jesus gets worn out and tired. He even submits himself to earthly parents who don't even have the same level of knowledge and wisdom that he possesses. So Jesus, he doesn't take on our sinful nature, but he does enter into the state of brokenness and lowliness through the incarnation. His glory is clothed in humility. The song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, the second stanza describes this. It says, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Second point ties to that, but if we consider the incarnation, it's kind of the big picture of Jesus stooping. The birth is where that happens, the specific example. And so we see through all the circumstances and the family and the events of Jesus' birth, how he stoops low in humility. I mean, it's one thing that Jesus stooped to become human, but he still could have picked a time and a place or a family that would have set him up for a life of power or wealth or success or ease or respect or any of those things. But Jesus chooses humble circumstances to be born into. Not only the family, but the timing and the context and every detail that we read in the accounts of his birth. That Jesus could have been born at a time or in a place where he could have benefited from all of the medicine and the technology of hospitals and doctors. Think of how much safer and cozier it would have been if Mary would have had Jesus in the 21st century and not the 1st century. We had Wyatt, our baby, in January, and by we, I mean my wife, obviously. I helped. Um, She bore the brunt of it, though. But one of the things you learn when you're in the hospital, here's here's a quick picture This is not a random internet baby. This is Wyatt. Everybody loves to see a cute baby. Um, So now that you're listening. So when Wyatt was born in January, they don't even let you hold your baby until they clean him, they weigh him, they suck all the stuff out of their nose, they kind of scrub them down. And then you, we have to be wearing a gown, we have to wash our hands, scrub our arms, had one of those attractive hospital hairnets on. So once you have all of that on, he's clean, they finally let you hold him. And so just think, if God wanted to enter easy and safe circumstances, he could have been born in a time and place like we have today. And yet Jesus chooses the first century, a hard life, humble circumstances, and the little stall in Bethlehem. Jesus could have at least chosen a setting fitting of him. He could have chosen to be born in a palace or a mansion or into a family that had wealth or was a dignitary. And yet Jesus was born into a family that was poor in a situation that was not deemed honorable. Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, which meant most people probably assumed she was lying and they thought she was pregnant out of wedlock. And so that was not only a social stigma at the time, but it was actually in their law a sin punishable by death if Joseph would have allowed it. And so right from his birth for Jesus, there's scandal and there's disrepute surrounding his birth his mother, and his family. Jesus is from Nazareth. Nazareth is a remote, insignificant village. Nazareth would not make it onto a map today, and it did not make it on a map in those days. In fact, we read Luke, 
It's such a small town that Luke has to say it's from Galilee so that even his readers would know where Jesus is from. And think about it. Nazareth is never mentioned once in the Old Testament. Almost every city town in Israel has some level of spiritual background and significance, and yet Nazareth does not. And that's where Jesus comes from. It's so small, remote, and significant that when Philip invites Nathaniel to come meet the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, his response is, nothing good can come out of Nazareth. He can't imagine anyone important, let alone the Son of God or the Messiah, coming out of Nazareth. As a kid from Shelbyville, I can appreciate Jesus coming from the boondocks. We have that in common, at least. We know then Mary and Joseph, they're not only from a a small village, but they're also probably poor. In Luke 2, when they take Jesus to the temple to present him, they don't have enough money to offer a lamb. The Levitical law allows those who don't have the resources or the money to offer a lamb, you can offer a pigeon instead. Can I tell the value of a lamb versus a pigeon? And it seems like in Luke 2, that's the case. They're so poor, they offer a pigeon instead of a lamb. Luke 2.4 tells us that he's born in the little town of Bethlehem, not the big city of Jerusalem. Because if it was the Son of God, you'd think the story would, it would end that somebody opened up their home, that they wanted a warm place, a safe place for Jesus to be born. And yet, as you know, that's not the story. There were no shortcuts or easy fixes for Mary, Joseph, or Jesus. Because all the houses and the guest rooms were full, Mary and Joseph have the baby Jesus among the animals. Luke 2, 7 again says, And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Just think about that. The God who made every single square inch of the universe has no place for him to be born. That the Son of God, he exchanged the throne in heaven for an animal trough. That he forsakes the company of angels for the company of animals. That the God in heaven stoops down to become God in the hay. So all of the circumstances we read about Jesus' birth, the family he enters into, his hometown, and even the context, they display the humility, the lowliness, and the meekness that Jesus fully entered into. And so if, if you ever think that Jesus cannot enter into your life, you, you look at how humble and lowly it is, you look at how your life is disappointing, discouraging, how much different it is from that Thomas Kincaid picture you imagined it would be, just remember the humble, lowly life that Jesus entered. The encouragement is that part of the beauty and the wonder of this story is if he stooped that low once, he can stoop into our humble lowly, messy lives. The third stanza of Hark the Herald Angels Sing continues. It says, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give us second birth. Hark the Herald Angels Sing, glory to this humble newborn king. Before moving on to the life of Jesus, I just want to mention one application as I was reading this story again, and especially reading Luke 2 and the life of Jesus, um, there was something that convicted me and struck me. And it's that if Jesus and Jesus' parents, if they weren't spared the frustrations and the difficulties of life, then I shouldn't plan on being spared or exempted either. 
And yet, whether it's a large trial or just the small annoyances of everyday life, like my son poking his eye with a fork this week or thinking my daughter has pink eye, all of those little things, those aren't things that we're promised to be exempt from. And yet, I tend to grumble. I tend to ask God, God, why can't you just take these out of my life? Why can't you just make it a little easier, a little better, a little less difficult, and give me a smooth path? And yet, when you read the story of Jesus, we see how Jesus and his parents were never given that easy, smooth path. He experienced all the normal difficulties. The father doesn't wave a magic wand and say, yeah, I know they're a poor family, but somehow I'm going to make them exempt from Caesar's taxes. The father doesn't say, yes, I know it's a long trip, but Mary has the Son of God in her belly. I'm just going to automatically put her in Bethlehem. She still has to take that long, difficult, dangerous road. God doesn't supernaturally hold a room for Jesus at the end. He still has to be born next to a manger. And so if Jesus was not exempt from difficulties, from trials, from stress, from burdens, then we should not expect to be exempt from trials either. And yet part of what we see here is God's concern. It's not so much that you would have that cozy, easy life or help you avoid all these trials. His concern is in the midst of those to shape you, to conform you into his image through those trials. But we also see in this story that wherever you are today, these hard places in life, the humble place, these unwanted circumstances, the way you would write the story different, all of these are a reminder that God is not against you. God is still with you. That even this story does not look the way you want it, this is part of a life in a broken world. And yet, just like God was working in the story in Luke 2, just like God was going before Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, protecting them, providing for them, and caring for them, whatever the difficulty you are in today, God will continue to guide you, lead you, and protect you. He's not going to spare you the trial. He's not going to spare you the hard circumstances, but he will be with you. And he does have good purposes that you may not always see. So we see that Jesus stoops in his incarnation. Jesus stoops in his birth. The third thing we see is that Jesus stoops low in his life. Both his circumstances, but also his character, his heart. Not only was Jesus born in humble circumstances, but what we see is Jesus chooses to stay in those kind of circumstances his entire life. Here's some of the examples of where we see that. Jesus remains poor, never acquiring possessions or wealth. Jesus spends the majority of his life as a simple carpenter in that insignificant town of Nazareth. Jesus is not recognized by the rulers, by the leaders, by those who are respected. In fact, Jesus' ministry is most often to those who are sort of on the margins and neglected. Fishermen, tax collectors, those who are sick and who have diseases, the unclean, the poor, Gentiles and Samaritans, and those considered sinners. Jesus says he comes not to be served, but to serve others. Jesus rides into Jerusalem not on an impressive horse, but on a lowly donkey. He's described as a friend of sinners, the lowly people. He's described as a man who was rejected and despised by men, one who was acquainted with sorrows and grief. Jesus takes on the role of a servant, and in one of the clearest pictures, we see him get down on his knees and humbly wash his own disciples' dirty feet. He doesn't make them do that for him. He humbles himself as a servant. 
And so the story of Jesus, it's not just that it begins at a manger, and it's kind of this rags-to-riches story where he climbs the ladder, and eventually he gains respect and power and wealth. Now, the story of Jesus is he was born in a manger, and he goes lower and lower and lower all the way to the cross. One of the best books in recent years is Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. If you come tonight, every family will get a free book if you're here in attendance. That's my gift to you. Not actually from me. I didn't buy it, but it's from Crossway. But it's my gift to you if you come. Well, the title of that book, Gentle and Lowly, it's taken from Matthew eleven twenty nine, And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, we have this rare instance where it's not the author, a Bible author, describing Jesus. It's not how people around him describe Jesus. It's how Jesus himself describes the core of who he is to his people. He doesn't describe himself as mighty, as wise, as sovereign, as glorious, even though all those things are true and significant. The way Jesus describes himself to us is gentle and lowly in heart. In our home these days, we're actually using the word gentle a lot. As I mentioned, my daughter, she's almost five, and our son is almost one. Um, and Lily is a great big sister to Wyatt. She helps us out. She throws diapers away. She plays with him, makes him laugh, uh, tries to keep him occupied on our road trips. She's a good sister. And yet, she doesn't really get the difference between a five-year-old and a one-year-old. Sometimes she thinks he's still a stuffed animal and that he doesn't have feelings when she tosses him around. She doesn't get the difference between me wrestling with her and him wrestling with him. And so often I hear these words in our house, gentle, gentle, Lily, you need to be gentle, with your brother. And so as we use this language of gentleness, gentleness means that you handle something with care because it's fragile. And so when we think of Jesus as gentle, we think about the gentleness of Jesus, it means in part that he always handles us with care. That he's aware of our weakness and our frailty. He knows how fragile you are. He knows those humble circumstances you are in. And though even though Jesus has all power and glory and is mighty and has no sin in and of himself, he treats us with such gentleness and care. He knows how to draw near to us when we're afraid to draw near to him. He knows how to relate to us in our humility and lowliness because he walked a life of humility and lowliness. You never have to tell Jesus, gentle, gentle, Jesus, be gentle with me. Because Jesus is gentle and lowly, he will always treat you in a gentle way. Dane Ortland, in his book, he says this. The reason that Jesus is in such close solidarity with us is that the difficult path we were on is not unique to us. He has journeyed on it himself. It is not only that Jesus can relieve us from our troubles, like a doc- doctor prescribing medicine, it is also that before any relief comes, He is with us in our troubles, like a doctor who has endured the same disease. In other words, Jesus is understanding and gentle to the humble because that's the road he walked in his earthly life. Before we move on to the death of Jesus, I want to give two quick applications of what I think we can draw out of looking at the humility and the gentleness of Jesus' life. The first thing is that Jesus invites the humbled and the lowly to himself to give us grace and help in our time of need. Part of my hope this this morning in this sermon is that as you reflect on this aspect of Jesus, you better understand who he is, that Jesus is the humble king. But I hope you connect the dots that not only is that who he is, 
But that's how he relates to us. That's how he treats us as a humble king. And this morning, that is good news if you've been humbled by life, by disappointments, by battling sin, or by circumstances that you're walking in. That low place that you're in, when you feel empty, when you feel like you have nothing left to give, when you're humble or humbled, that doesn't push Jesus away. That draws Jesus near. And that could include a wide range of experiences today. Maybe life has just felt disappointing or dis- discouraging, and you feel like you're at a low point right now. Maybe you or a loved one has been walking through a valley with failing health or a fading mind, an unwanted diagnosis. Or maybe you're looking forward to this year, and all you see again are more doctors and hospital visits, and it leaves you feeling weary. Maybe every time you get on social media, or even when you show up to church, and you look at all the lives of other people, it feels like they have what you want, or they have everything put together. Maybe as much as you long for Christmas to be this magical time of year, full of memories, the reality is you already have the Christmas blues, or you feel stressed with what needs done, or you feel let down by how Christmas is anything but a Hallmark movie. Maybe trials, difficulties, and pain from the past year, the past few months, have simply worn you down and left you empty. Maybe this morning, just that daily battle, the daily grind of fighting our sin, fighting your fear, fighting your anxiety, fighting your pride, your fear of man, your lust, whatever it is, that daily fight against sin has left you humbled, seeing how much you need God's grace to fight sin, how much you need God's grace to make it another day. Or maybe there's something in your life that feels out of control, something that you know you can't manage, something that's so hard for you to even imagine how God will fix this, change it or make it better, and it leaves you discouraged or in despair. The list could go on and on, and each of us are walking through our different valleys and trials. But what I know is that life in a broken, fallen world will humble us. It will lead us to that sense of feeling our need before God, of feeling lowly, and feeling humbled. Life has a way of just sweeping our feet under us, leaving us on our knees, or even flat on our face. And yet the good news of this Christmas story is the reminder that Jesus is a humble king who relates to humble, lowly people. The the lie, the whisper, I think, when we feel humbled, when we feel lowly, when we feel discouraged or in despair, is that because of where we are, we should not go to God, that he would not look on lowly creature like us. And yet one of the things that stands out to me from the Gospels is how approachable Jesus is. No one ever fears approaching Jesus. No one ever fears that they're going to be shamed or given a guilt trip. No one fears rejection. No one fears that their disease is too far gone or too appalling. No one thinks Jesus will see their brokenness and shake his head or turn away. No one thinks Jesus is too busy for them or above them or that they are too small, too weak, too poor, or too far in the margins of society to approach Jesus. No one is held back by how little knowledge they have, how weak their faith is, how broken they are, or how much shame they carry. Instead, what we see in the Gospels again and again and again is that all form of sinners and strugglers, they approach Jesus believing that he will listen, that he receives them, that he welcomes them, and that Jesus alone is the one who can heal them and make them whole. So this morning we're reminded that Jesus knows you, that Jesus knows the real you and his desire is to comfort you, to strengthen you, and to come around you in your state of humility. 
those moments throughout the day when you feel low, when you feel humbled, when you feel your need, those aren't things just to push to the side or to deny. Those are the moments you lean in and you leverage those. You draw near to a God who is near to the humble because he has experienced humility himself. So the first thing is that God draws near to the humble and the lowly. And the second application is that Jesus aims to make us humble and lowly just like him. As we consider the meekness and the gentleness and the humility of Jesus, it's not only an encouragement to run to him knowing he receives you, but it's also an encouragement and maybe a little conviction that we need to reflect him. Church Father Augustine once wrote, For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. And So just as we personally need a humble king, we need to reflect to others what our humble king is like. This was the ground of Paul's argument in Philippians 2, as he appealed to the church to follow Jesus' example with both unity and humility. This is where he said, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And then as he proceeds, he grounds that. He gives the motivation and the model of Jesus, that Jesus stoops low to serve us, that Jesus sets aside his rights to lay them down for us, that Jesus counts other people more significant than himself. And the encouragement is then surely we can do likewise. But unfortunately, I think we often take on the practices and the posture of our culture. People today want to speak louder than their opponents. We want to show how much we know. We want to always feel like we're in the right. We escalate rather than de-escalate conflict and tension. We assume our voices and our opinions always need to be heard and shared. We want others to bend to us, not us bend to them. And yet, I think if we reflect on our conversations, our Facebook interactions, our relationships, what we think in our mind about what other people owe us and what we deserve, and even how we treat and we talk to the people we disagree with, I think most of us would see a gap between our humility and the humility of Jesus. And so we need this reminder that Christ's aim is not to treat us with humility and then we turn around and treat people with contempt or pride or hostility or selfishness, but the humble Christ wants to make humble Christians. That is, if Jesus came not to be served, but to serve, if Jesus came not seeking honor, but humility, if Jesus came not to claim his rights, but to lay them down, then we as his disciples must give more attention to following in his footsteps. As Charles Spurgeon considered the Christmas story in the gospel, he preached these words. He said, one of the great lessons of the gospel is to teach us to be meek, to put away our high and angry spirits, and to make us lowly in heart. We can learn nothing, even of Christ himself, while we hold our heads up with pride or exalt ourselves with self-confidence. We must be meek and lowly in heart. Otherwise, we are totally unfit to be taught by Christ. Empty vessels may be filled, but vessels that are full already can receive no more. The man who knows his own emptiness can receive abundance of knowledge and wisdom and grace from Christ. But he who glories in himself is not in a fit condition to receive anything from God. So if we are to experience more of Jesus, 
this Christmas or in 2022, and if we are to reflect more of Jesus this Christmas at our Christmas gatherings, but also in 2022, then we need to know the gentleness and lowliness of Jesus, and we need to embrace and reflect the gentleness and humility and lowliness of Jesus. The last thing I want us to consider, we've talked about his incarnation, his birth, his life, and then the greatest example of the humility of Jesus is how he stoops low in his death. We see this vividly in his bloody death on the cross. Philippians 2.8, we've read from Philippians a few times. Verse 8 continues, he humbles himself all the way to the point of becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so it's one thing that Jesus would stoop to live a human life, but it's almost unfathomable that he would then allow himself to not only be killed, but to die in the most horrific, most embarrassing, most cruel way possible, the cross. That the Son of God, the righteous Son of God, allows unrighteous people to put him to death. That he is falsely accused and he does not defend himself. That he is mocked and ridiculed, but he holds his tongue. He is beaten, but he does not retaliate with the force that would crush them in an instant. And he is nailed to a cross. Nailed to a cross like a criminal. Cursed, embarrassed, naked, forsaken, carrying the sin and the shame of the world on his shoulders. So why? Why does Jesus do this? Why would such a king step down from his throne and be treated like a criminal on a cross, displayed and degraded? Well, the answer is he humbles himself to the point of the lowest of low on the cross so that he can rescue you, to raise you up to the highest of highs. And that's why the Christmas story, which is a true story, is such a gracious and glorious story. That this baby born of a virgin laid in a manger in these humble circumstances would one day stoop even lower for us by dying on a cross for our sin, being buried in a grave. And yet, that is not the end of the story. But through his death, he defeats death. That his state of humiliation is turned into a state of exaltation as he is raised from that grave and seated at the right hand of the Father. And part of our hope is that same reversal in Jesus' story is the reversal we will one day experience. That though in this hard and humble life, we walk through hard and humbling circumstances, that one day, when Christ returns, we will then be exalted and glorified with him forever.